We're going to look this morning at Job chapter 4, and um, we're also going to be looking at Job chapter 5. And um, as we read this, um, let's keep in mind to our New Testament reading. Um, One of the patterns I think is always really helpful when we come to church is that we have an Old and New Testament reading. And each week, if you come here regularly at Cornerstone, you'll see how both um, passages fit together because the Bible is really a unity. Um, The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And there's a beautiful symmetry that happens between um, the two Testaments. And hopefully as you see God's Word this morning and as we read it together, you'll see the relevance of Ephesians chapter 6 as we look at Job chapter 4 and chapter 5. So starting Job chapter 4, starting at verse 1, and this is the word of the Lord. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you, and you are discouraged. It strikes you, and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence, and your blamelessness, or your blameless ways, your hope? Consider now, who being innocent... Has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they are destroyed. At the blast of his anger they perish. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lions perish for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night, when deep sleep falls on men, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. And the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Can a man be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. Between dawn and dusk, they are broken to pieces. Unnoticed, they perish forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up so that they die without wisdom? Let's pray. Lord, what a blessing it is to come together today to worship you, the true and living God. As we've already seen from your word this morning, Lord, 
We know that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. And Lord, as we see in the book of Job, so many times through our suffering, this becomes all the more clearer and evident. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to hear your word, speaking to us through your word this morning. That, Father, we um, would understand your ways more clearly and that we would respond with the obedience of faith. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know whether you've heard about this or not, but the word, apparently for 2022, or the word of the year, was the term gaslighting. I'm sure you've heard somebody mention it, but it's the process of making somebody think that they are um, insane when they're actually not. The term gaslighting takes its name from a movie, I found out, made all the way back in 1944, called, as you would have it, Gaslight. And it stars the famous Ingrid Bergman. In the film, a husband tries to convince his wife that she is going crazy so that she'll be committed to an insane asylum. The reason why he wants to do this is because his wife's late aunt has hidden priceless jewels somewhere in the house and he wants to be able to find the jewels and keep all the money for himself. Occasionally, he searches the attic where he thinks that the jewels um, or the treasure are hidden and the lights in the rest of the house start to dim or flicker because they're fueled by gas. So he's searching upstairs, uh, puts the lights on up there, the rest of the house goes a bit dim. Whenever his wife comments about the change, though, he denies it and he starts to make her question her own view of reality. At the end of the movie, a policeman visits and he confirms that, nope, she's not crazy, the lights have dimmed, some of them are starting to flicker, and indeed something quite nefarious is going on. Sadly, it's a psychological tactic that many people still use today. So much so that it was deemed to be the word of 2022, gaslighting. As we come to the speeches or the three speeches of Job's uh, three friends, I think it's a classic case of gaslighting that is going on. They are trying to convince him that he is spiritually insane, when the reality is he's not. You see, we, the reader, know the reality of the situation, but his friends do their best to try and convince him otherwise. We know that Job is not suffering in any way because he sinned, but all of Job's friends are determined to convince him of the opposite. In short, they are making him question his spiritual sanity. Suffering has a way of not just showing who your friends are, but also what they think of you. Because it's easy to have and to be a friend to somebody when things are going well. But it's when we're in need, though, when the quality of our relationships, and in particular our friendships, are tested. 
One of the tricky things that we have to keep in mind when we read the speeches of Job's friends is that they are all fundamentally wrong. We know this for sure because at the end of the book, the Lord himself says that he is angry with Eliphaz and his two mates because they haven't spoken of him what is right. That they have effectively gaslighted Job into questioning the truth of his own reality. And so we have to be really careful when we read any of the friends of these speeches. Because there is a whole lot of truth that is mixed in with the error. And each one of them is really, really clever at doing it. You see, it's not like the lights have completely gone off. They've dimmed or they're flickering. There's light still there, but it's mixed in with darkness. That's always the case, isn't it, with a really good counterfeit. The closer it is to the real thing, the more deceptive and the more dangerous it is. If you went to the shops and somebody gave you Monopoly money to spend, you wouldn't use it. You would laugh at them. You'd easily spot it as a fake from a mile off. But the closer a counterfeit note is to the real thing, the more deceitful and the more dangerous it is. And as we'll see today, there's a sense in which, a very real sense in which, Job's three friends are acting in precisely the same way. While on the surface they appear to be righteous, I think self-righteous, and even religious, they're relaying exactly the same messages as the devil. And this is where I also think there is much for us to learn. Because the most painful thing that happens, or the most painful thing really about suffering, is not necessarily what happens, as tragic as that is, but it's often what people say to you afterwards. Our lives can fall apart in an instant, just like that, through a tragedy of some kind, an accident, a sickness. But it's the questioning of our characters which can really cause the most pain and do the most damage of all. So in the coming weeks, as we consider the speeches of Job's three friends, we have to be extra discerning as to what each of one of them has to say. Now, there are five main ways Eliphaz tries to gaslight Job in chapters 4 and 5. And they're all incredibly clever, subtle, mean-spirited, deceptive, and ultimately false. The first is with the use of a very sly accusation in verses 1 to 5. If you've still got your Bibles open, have a look at this with me. Notice that Eliphaz opens by questioning Job's own patience. He says in verse 2, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Eliphaz then flatters Job and strokes his ego by saying how helpful and knowledgeable in the past Job himself has been. 
He's instructed many. He's strengthened feeble hands. He's supported those who stumble. And he's strengthened faltering knees. But now that suffering has come upon him. Well, all of a sudden, Eliphaz accuses Job of being discouraged. Or literally in Hebrew, impatient. It's a subtle but deliberate put-down which seeks to undermine Job's own personal character and credibility. It's also the ancient strategy of what's called the ad hominem attack. That is, you play the man or you play the person rather than the ball. Rather than address the issue itself, the character of the other person is themselves assassinated. But significantly, Job is held up in the rest of Scripture as the paragon of perseverance and in particular patience. That's the reality or truth. Ian Headley, when he was chairing a couple of weeks ago, reminded us of James chapter 5. And remember there, it explicitly says this, Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. And then it says, You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So, It's not accurate to say that Job is being guilty of being impatient. Giving emotional expression to his pain and loss, as he did in chapter 4, is not the same thing as giving up. Or indeed, I think, of being impatient. Indeed, as low as Job goes, even though he longs to die... And he wishes that he'd even never been conceived. This is, he never actually seeks to take his own life or to ask someone else to end it. Can I just say, this is part of the reason why our recent euthanasia laws are so horrific. We need legal protections most Precisely when we are at our most vulnerable. We need those legal protections for ourselves. And we need those legal protections so that others might not sin against us. I read of a tragic situation recently. This is true, right? Of a woman in California named Stephanie Parker. You can look this up. She was denied chemotherapy by her insurance company because it was deemed too expensive. Euthanasia laws are now common in Southern California. But the insurance agency did agree, though, to supply the drugs which were needed for doctor or physician-assisted suicide, the cost of which came to $1.20. Such is the brave new world of medical expediency which, has, which we have now entered into. As some 
ethicists and theologians have said, and forgive me for being crass like this, there's nothing cheaper than dead. The second aspect follows on from this, and it's that Eliphaz operates out of a grossly simplistic theology. A worldview in which the righteous are always rewarded and that the wicked are always punished. It's what you might call a transactional view. Note in particular what Eliphaz says in verses 7 and 8. Because it's a view which a lot of people take, even though it's fundamentally wrong. Eliphaz says, consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Now, as I've just said, it's incredibly uncaring when you have a friend there who's indeed suffering because it's really saying you deserve it. But it's also fundamentally wrong. You could call this type of thinking the sound of music approach to life. Remember the song where Julia Andrews' character sings of her love for the captain. I know it's a great song, but it's really bad theology, right? She says, I'm not going to sing it to you, you'll be glad to know. Perhaps I had a wicked childhood, perhaps I had a miserable youth, but somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. For here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should, so somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. You see the, the thinking? I deserved this. And then she goes on to sing, Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Now, as I said at the start of the sermon, the problem with the reasoning of Job's three friends is that there is some truth to what they're saying. It's not completely false. That's what makes it such a dangerous counterfeit. For instance, the Bible does talk in passages like Galatians about a man reaps what he sows. That's true. If you make dumb, stupid decisions, then you have to live with the consequences. If you save your money little by little and you're disciplined with that, you will reap that reward. But the problem is, that's not always the case. As we all know, sometimes the innocent do suffer. And in contradiction to the old saying that cheaters never prosper, sometimes, in fact, they do. You don't have to live long, do you, to have some kind of financial interaction where you get ripped off and the person gets away with it. I hope to come back to this point in the weeks ahead, but Psalm 73 is a clear example of how the Bible itself explains this. That the wicked sometimes do prosper. But there are a number of notable examples of this in Scripture as well. Take, for instance, Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain. Abel didn't do anything that deserved death. In fact, he was a man of faith before God. 
It was jealousy that motivated Cain to kill his brother. Or what about Joseph, who's sold into slavery by his brothers? Oh, okay, he got a coat of many colours, but he didn't deserve to be sold as a slave. Or what about the person that we've just worshipped this morning? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who was tried, crucified, while being innocent of any crime. Which means the problem with Eliphaz's theology is that it is horribly simplistic. And that's precisely what makes it also so dangerous. There's just enough truth in it to make it sound reasonable, but there's also not enough truth in it to make it ultimately right. The third element of Eliphaz's approach, though, is the most insidious of all. And that is him drawing on his extraordinary supernatural experience which is more in line, quite frankly, with the occult than it is with biblical spirituality. He says in verse 12 and following, A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night, when deep sleep falls on men, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped it but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes and I heard a hushed voice. It all sounds very mysterious and powerful, but the reality is it's quite off. The Lord doesn't relate to us in this way and it's more in keeping with the nature of Satan. For the Lord is holy and righteous good. He delights to work through our minds as we meditate on his word and his presence fills us with insight and clarity and this beautiful sense of truth. What Eliphaz is describing here though is something which is completely different. And yet whenever someone tells you about a strange or powerful spiritual experience they've had, doesn't it make you want to doubt yourself and feel insecure? That they're experiencing something special which, which you yourself have missed out on? Maybe you're not as gifted as them. Maybe you're not as special. Or maybe it's because you're not as zealous or, or committed in your relationship with God that they're having these spiritual experiences, but you, you are not. Can I say this, friends? Please hear this. Not every conviction or indeed revelation is from the Lord. It is, it is possible that you might think in your conscience that you're right, but you're wrong. As the book of Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. We have to test everything, as Simon so helpfully instructed the children and all of us this morning. We have to test everything against God's word. The sword of the Spirit. 
So be really, really careful when anyone comes to you claiming to have a, a special word from the Lord. Just take, for instance, the content of what this demonic spirit relays to Eliphaz. And it is a demonic spirit. In the ancient Near East, this word, a spirit, is often used for actually a category of demon. Read me with me again what it says in verses 17 to 20. Because while it sounds good, it's the completely, it is actually completely corrupt and rotten. It's a mixture of simplistic theology and really devilish falsehood. Verse 17, can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. Between dawn and dusk, they're broken to pieces. Unnoticed, they perish forever. As though the Lord relates to any of us in this way who are his children. That we are of no more consequence than a bug to be squashed, a fly to be squatted, unnoticed, discarded. The Lord doesn't relate to us this way, friends. What a terrible insult and slur upon the Lord. Our Father in heaven loves us and cares for us so deeply and so intimately that he has each hair on our head numbered. That not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from his will. We are not bugs. What's more, as we've already seen from Chapters 1 and 2, the Lord places an amazing degree of trust in his servants. For it was God himself who suggested to Satan that he consider his servant Job. Why would you do that unless you trusted him? By the way, the evil spirit says that people cannot be, and you've got to pay careful attention to what the scripture is saying here, that cannot be righteous or pure before God, and that's true. But here's the lie. Those two terms are never used by God about Job. Instead, Job is described by the Lord in chapters 1 and 2, you can go back and have a look at it, not as righteous or pure, that would mean he was without sin. What he is described as being is blameless and upright. You see the difference? Job is not sinless, but at the same time, he's a man of integrity. He's a man of godliness. He's a man that fears the Lord. And so it's yet another example of gaslighting someone by making, and here's the thing, an over-the-top and extreme statement about them. It's a straw man argument. What's more, as many have pointed out, the Lord does put an amazing amount of trust in Job. Because if Job had cursed God, as Satan had falsely predicted, then there is a sense in which the Lord would have looked foolish and his own wisdom would have been called into question. There is a sense that that's true. So what this demonic spirit is saying to Eliphaz is totally incorrect and misleading. Now, can you see already 
how deceptive the devil is. Because when we read that together this morning, didn't it seem reasonable? There's actually a heap of other things which are also wrong with what this ghostly figure says to Aliphaz, but I'm sure by now you get the point. Just because someone says to you that they've had some kind of spiritual experience or word from God doesn't mean it's true. No matter how strong they are in their convictions. Instead, we should do what the Apostle John tells us, and that is we should test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Test the spirits. The fourth aspect follows on from this and it demonstrates Eliphaz's own self-righteous attitude and understanding. We're told in the book of Proverbs to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. And this is a really good illustration that Eliphaz is not obeying that word from God. Because nearly everything Eliphaz says in verses 8 to 16 in one sense, is theologically correct. And it's not that he's saying really anything here that is wrong about God, but he is relying on his own understanding. Because once you're familiar with what happens in chapters 1 and 2, it becomes clear that while Eliphaz is right in what he's saying about God, it's actually clear that it's false in how he's applying it here in Job's situation. You can't put God in a box. You can't say this is the way the Lord always relates to his people. You don't know that because you're not God. In fact, it's hugely ironic that Eliphaz should lecture Job on how if he will just repent, God will deliver him from the piercing words of his enemies. (laughs) That's exactly what Eliphaz is doing. Oh, if only he could know. Oh, Job, if you just repent, people like me wouldn't be here. (laughs) And it's he who, at the end of the book, it's Eliphaz in particular. Eliphaz is told to repent and he's told to go and seek Job out that Job might make atonement for his sin. (laughs) Pride, though, always has a way of blinding us to the errors which exist in our own hearts. We see oh so clearly the speck in another's eye, but we fail to see the log that is present in our own. There's actually a really funny thing that happens here. It's that the uh, Apostle Paul quotes Eliphaz and what he says in verse 13. This is what Paul quotes. He catches the wise in their craftiness and the schemes of the wily are swept away. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I think actually Paul is using it here in a way not to validate what Eliphaz says, but as a further example of what Eliphaz himself was guilty of. His words have come back to haunt him. You see, Eliphaz, just like the Corinthians, were boasting about their own wisdom and their own understanding. (laughs) And Paul says you have to be really careful of doing that because the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. God delights in catching the the craftiness or the wise in their craftiness, just as he did with Eliphaz in the book of Job. 
This is why it's so important that we comfort others who are suffering. And please, again, hear me on this, and that we don't pontificate or theologize about their situation. You don't know. I don't know. I know God. I know his ways in operating in the world. But you don't know why that's happening to that person at this particular time. Sometimes you might have a really good idea, but you've got to be really careful of actually, of actually saying this is the reason why. And if you just repent and get on board, then you'll be okay. You don't know that. We don't know that. We never know the full story because we're not God. And so we have to be really careful of jumping to conclusions or even worse, placing on already weary shoulders even heavier loads. All of which brings us to the fifth and final point, which in many ways I think is the most deceptive of them all. Because if you stop and reflect on what Eliphaz is saying here, he's actually using the same logic as Satan. What I mean by that is he's seeking to motivate Job to serve God by repenting so that he will receive all of the earthly benefits and blessings that that brings. Now that is Satan's reasoning. Remember how Satan accused the Lord of being only able to buy worshippers? That people like Job only worship him because of all of the temporal blessings that they receive? Remember that? But what if all of those things were taken away, the devil says? Would they still worship you? Well, here is Eliphaz trying to use exactly the same logic to gaslight Job into admitting that he has done something wrong and that he will only repent then in his simplistic transactional theology, God will bless you again. See, God's like a genie in a bottle. Rub the lamp and you'll get your wishes. Problem with having a genie in the bottle is that you become the master and God is there to do your bidding. Do you see how topsy-turvy that logic is? It's extremely cruel what Eliphaz says here. Especially, just stop for a moment and think of everything that has happened to Job. And then, cast your eyes over verses 24 to 26 of chapter 5. Verse 24. If you will just repent, Job, if you will just acknowledge that you've sinned, you will take stock of your property and you'll find that nothing is missing. The man who has just lost everything. If you will, verse 25, if you will just repent, Job, and confess your sin, you will know that your children will be many. He was just lost, all of his sons and daughters. If you will just repent, Job, and confess that you've sinned against the God, you will come down to your grave in full vigor. He was suffering so grievously that he's unrecognizable to his friends. These are all of the things which Job himself has lost. He's lost his property. He's lost his children. He's lost his very own health. And in verse 21, Eliphaz says again, and you'll be protected from the lash of the tongue. All while giving him one of the greatest tongue lashings in the history of the world. 
just because you and I are believers doesn't mean that we are not going to suffer. We should know this. But especially in the church, there is this false teaching. And it is a false teaching. Because it's really more in keeping... Well, no. It is in keeping with the devil. That God only wants his people to prosper. Come to Jesus. You'll be healthy, wealthy and wise. That's of the devil. Nothing difficult... Nothing painful is ever going to come your way. God doesn't trust you. You're just a bug. And it's not true. What this first speech of Eliphaz reminds us then is that, you know what? Our battle against flesh and blood is actually against principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. There is a cosmic conflict, brothers and sisters, occurring in heaven right now and it involves, it implicates particularly people who trust in Jesus. Want to be freed from that? Don't follow Jesus. Go back to Psalm 73 and prosper like the wicked. Want to follow Jesus? Then roll up your sleeves and prepare for battle. Because Satan is wanting to sift us like chaff. And if it wasn't for the Lord's loving hedge and protection, which is there, we would all fall away. None of us would stand. One of the things we have to keep in mind about the devil, though, is that he absolutely has no scruples. The devil doesn't care if you're depressed if you're weak, if you're suffering. He loves to whisper like Job's wife whispers, curse God and die. And he will even use those times to further assault us and to twist in the knife. The challenge then is, as we read in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Yes, we're weak, but thankfully he is strong. And he has provided us with all we need to take our stand against the devil and his wicked ways. When our enemy ever tries to gaslight us, make us doubt the truth of God's promises. Eliphaz says to Job at the start of chapter 5, have a look at this, chapter 5 verse 1, Call if you will, but who will answer you? horrible thing to say what a great comforter you are call out there's no one to help you to which of the holy ones will you turn there is once again a strange irony in Eliphaz saying this because not only not only do we know that the Lord is totally for Job but we know that Job himself will go on to confess that there is one in heaven who is acting on his behalf and has been from the very beginning who is the initiator of all of this happening he who is for us is greater than he who is against us the first is in verses 19 to 21 of chapter 16 if you have your bibles with you your own bibles 
big encouragement here to bring your own Bible to church every week. Have a look at Job chapter 16, verses 19 to 21. What makes it such an amazing statement is that it said this side of the cross. But we know, uh, for we know who Jesus is. What Job says here, though, this side of the cross is all the more incredible and remarkable. He says this. Even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high, my intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. Isn't that just incredible? But there's an even more powerful and famous passage and it's found in Job chapter 19. Once again, I don't know how Job has come to understand and believe this. I think it must be by revelation of the Holy Spirit as opposed to the false demonic spirit which was influencing Eliphaz. But at the end of chapter 19, Job says this, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another Oh, how my heart yearns within me. Doesn't it make you want to cry out to God, Amen? That no matter how much you are suffering, you have a Redeemer in heaven that intercedes for you. And that even though your flesh and blood should fail and be destroyed, you will see God. You will see him, not another. And on that day, he will welcome you as his friend. You see, in contradiction to what Eliphaz says, Job does have an advocate in heaven. There is a holy one to whom he can turn. And you and I know his name. It's Jesus. Our great high priest and spotless sacrifice. The only one who alone is truly righteous. And pure, (laughs) and yet innocently suffered in our place. Do the innocent perish? You bet. Because that is at the heart of God's plan for salvation. No matter how you're feeling right now, can you please know you are not alone. You are never alone. You and I have a great high priest and advocate before the God of all the earth who lives to constantly intercede for us. And he's provided with us with all we need to take our stand against the devil, to recognise his lies. So let's be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You may feel weak. You may feel like you don't have the strength. And... In one sense, that is true. But God, in the ultimate sense, has given you his gospel armour. Even though all of hell should rail against us and people oppose us on every, so- on every side, let us fight the good fight. Let us put on the armour of the gospel and not allow the evil one to gaslight us into thinking that our circumstances are a direct reflection of our standing with God, because they are not. For he who is truly innocent has suffered in our place. He's risen from the dead and he secured our salvation once and for all. That's the reality that we as believers live. 
And no one or nothing which happens to us can snatch us out of the Lord's hands. All we need, all we need to do is be faithful and hold the ground which, we've, which has already been won. Notice what the Bible says. You're not to take ground. You're just to stand your ground. The ground has already been won. Jesus did that, the innocent sufferer. Our responsibility, friends, is to stand. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you being innocent took the punishment which we deserved. We thank you that you rose again from the dead. You ascended on high into heaven. Lord, thank you so much that your blood makes atonement for our sin. That even though we who are guilty, you have made us innocent. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit to believe your promises, to take our stand and to put on the gospel armour which you yourself have won for us at the cross. Father, bless us as brothers and sisters we pray. Bless us that we will walk in your ways, that, Lord, we will put on the gospel, that stand our ground, that we might be protected from all the arrows of the evil one. Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands. We thank you for speaking to us through your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.